Hello and welcome to another Not A Yes Man's podcast. I'm Sean Richards and this is the point of the week you get to ask me questions about economics and financial markets. I'm running these now for more than five years actually because this is number 266 or will be and I don't think I accounted quite in that format the interviews I did with Yana or the Purse podcast. Also let me point out that overnight this is Friday I'm speaking a big figure move in Japan, the Nikkei 225 hit 40,000. It's kind of significant in my career, for those of you unaware, I worked out there. Not quite at the boom, I was a year later in 1990, scary how long ago that is now. But this time around, the Nikkei 225 made 40,000 this morning. All sorts of consequences, you might like to look up my work on the Tokyo Well and how the Bank of Japan has played this. Now. Onto the questions. Thank you as ever for those. And we've got a bit of a variety this week to look at. The first is a question, a sort of technical one about corporate bond sales in the United States. There were lots of those in February. You've probably seen as much in the early part of the year as we saw in the whole of last year. Why is that? Well, in a way, it's a really bad idea because if you wanted to sell corporate bonds, you should have done it in sort of middle of 2020, late 2020, when yields were low, shouldn't you, when central banks were doing all the QE. In fact, they might have bought your corporate bonds as well and made them really cheap to issue. I think there were some negative yielding ones for the likes of Apple, and there certainly were in Europe. So on a strategic thing, it's a fail. On a tactical basis, I think you'd be saying that because we saw the push lower in yields as we went from 2023 into 2024. They're trying to take advantage of that. So that, I think, would be the move here. A bit cheaper. How that's going to work out will depend um, on how the interest rate cuts come in this year. I am expecting them. Not next week, by the way, for the ECB, but in the summer. And um, we'll have to see how that plays out. But I suppose if they're doing short dated ones, they're figuring that the cheaper levels of the early part of the year in January will mean that they'll get out of 2024 with a sort of profit, if you see what I mean. You might have been able to issue cheaper, but only right at the end of the year. So I think that's a lot of the factor behind it. The next one is one that I've been asked on various different angles this week. So let me give you a run through. And it's around the issue of broad money and the impact. One question I got on Twitter through the week was deflation, perhaps. So let me run through the situation and I'll explain with the UK figures. The UK uses a pretty wide measure of money supply. We call it M4. Um, it replaced the previous one because that was called Sterling M3. Things got into a mess. It didn't include the building societies when they were relevant. So a long word for you, disintermediation. Back to M4, though, you see... The issue in the UK at the minute is that it had an annual rate of minus 1.6% in January. So negative. What does that mean? If you take the pure theory, it tells you that money nominal demand will be 1.6% lower, somewhere between 18 months, two years ahead. When you hear central banks talking a policy horizon, that's really what they mean. Although some central banks, like the Bank of England, do their best to bury their head in the sand over the money supply. So that then creates a problem, you see, because just based on that, two years ahead, we're either going to have falling inflation, 
well, Bank of England will hate that. In fact, falling prices, excuse me. I'm a fan of that. They're not. Or the economy contracting. Or both. Because we get an idea of the wash of money, but what we don't know is how much of it will be inflation, how much of it will impact growth. That's the pure figure. So that's where you get the question about deflation. Now let's be careful about even what that is because people bandy the word about and I'm not sure they're often very clear in their definition. I regard that as a fall in aggregate demand. So you, you could call a fall in GDP, very similar, that sort of idea. So yes, that is possible, just looking at this. Now in the meantime, there'll be other influences, but you see, if we look backwards to the credit crunch, excuse me, the pandemic, what we see is that money supply surge, and I was looking up the UK numbers earlier in the week, rising to an annual rate of about 13% in the initial push from the Bank of England, as it was buying bonds everywhere, slashing interest rates. That then pretty much fed into inflation one for one, if you take a combination of the CPI, RPI measured, and you sort of put them together and try and get one number from that. So it worked virtually perfectly. So that begs a question, doesn't it? If you have an indicator that's working, what is that implying going forward? And as I said, the literal thing is a 1.6% decline in prices if the economy doesn't grow, or if prices stay the same, a 1.6% fall in the economy. Personally, I'm not a purist in this sort of thing, as I think it's exact, I use these things as the idea of a broad push, and the push is lower. So taking the question further ahead, what I would say in response to that is that basically it means interest rates are too high. Now this is a complicated issue, so let me again spell that out. I think they raised interest rates way too late to deal with inflation, but that's been and gone now. The issue is what we might get, and we're facing that, interest rates 5.15% higher than what the Bank of England thought was appropriate through the pandemic, didn't it? So they've been very contradictory here. You could take a literal thing of 4% inflation. They faced that with 0.1% on one side and then 5.25% now. Doesn't work, does it? Especially in now we know inflation's gonna fall and back then it was rising. So hopefully that gives you an idea. It's, it is a leading indicator and it's worked pretty well. That, and this gets kind of awkward for any central bankers listening, is why they ignore it. In some respects, the last thing they want is something that works. Next is the B word, Brexit, and a question about the Goldman Sachs report, saying that it's caused the UK a huge reduction in GDP performance, 5%. Is that huge? Well, it certainly is compared to any growth we've had, isn't it? We haven't that much. So yes, you could call that enormous relative to that. How does this work? What does this happen? If we break this down and try and look at it, I'll give you a number that I calculated. Um, this was back in 2016, that there was an inflationary impact. Now, if you look at the fall in the pound we saw then, that led to higher inflation to the order of 1.4%. For a while, the Bank of England disagreed with me, and I noticed they sort of changed their numbers and agreed. Whether that was an outright copy or whether they just agreed in the end, I don't know. But anyway, that was something that did happen. Would there have been an economic decline from that? Probably, but not that large. Now, as we move on, where would you find any impact if you start looking and 
you know, you get out your looking glass, what would you do? You could say in trade, some trade's weakening. But you see, in GDP terms, that doesn't really quite wash because we've seen reductions on both sides. So the impact wouldn't really come through in terms of the exports, if you're looking at via um, the expenditure measure of GDP. So, okay. So they're saying that there's been a fall, a large fall, and let's say my original one was down half a percent, so we got another four and a half percent to find. And I struggle to find that. Now let me be clear, I from the beginning thought that Brexit would be a more minor impact than many people claim. I mean some now still in Twitter terms, don't they, do the equivalent of screaming it at the top of their voices, but you know this summer will be eight years down the road. Yes, there'll be issues over trade. Yes, back in the past there are inflation issues. But there are lots of other things in play, like for example the thing I quoted about Japan earlier, because you see the flip side of that has been the fall in the yen. The pound's risen to 191 yen, so there are lots of other things going on. Let me present this in another way. If you say we'd have done 5% better staying in, then we'd have done so much better than the rest of the euro, because mostly our performance has been quite similar to Germany, France, Italy. The sort of countries we compare ourselves to. Spain at times, which I suppose you could argue we've been weaker. That's had a good run at times, but then it had an awful one before. So, you know, that's always difficult and how you play that out. Because remember, if you're a Euro area fan, then your economic performance is supposed to be the same, isn't it? I know it's not turned out like that, but that is the argument on that side. So I hope you find that of some use. And if you have, please take the advice of the coral and pass it on. Thank you.